All right, we are here. I'm super excited. We have Nicola. Now, you have probably all heard me talk about the book, No Period, Now What? Now what? And we're speaking to its author. Literally 15 years of research and experience right here for the next hour. And I... <laughs> We just had a big a big chat before actually hitting the record button. I'm like, we are going to get straight into it. There is so much goodness that's about to come out of this. So welcome. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you reaching out. Yeah, I'm super excited. I think I quote you the most. I'm always like, Nicholas says that you need to eat this much for three months if you're trying to get your period back. So um, I'm super excited that we actually get to talk. So now what we're talking about is athletes losing their periods and it's mm -hmm. technical term is uh, hypothalamic amenorrhea, which yep. I think is pronounced differently depending where you're from. Can you actually explain like, what is that name? What does it actually mean? I think, you know, it's like got something to do with like the HPA axis potentially. What is, where does amenorrhea come from? Can you give us a bit of a like background on the name? Yes, absolutely. So, um, the name obviously has two parts, hypothalamus, uh, hypothalamic. Um, so the hypothalamus is a small area of your brain that um, takes in inputs from all over your body. So it takes in hormonal inputs, it takes in other signals, and then it controls a lot of your other hormonal systems. So it sends out hormones that control your pituitary gland, um, so reproductive hormones, so like FSH follicle stimulating hormone, LH luteinizing hormone, um, it sends out thyrotropin releasing hormone that then leads your pituitary to send out TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone. Um, so it controls your pituitary, it controls your thyroid, it sends hormones to your adrenal gland. So it's sort of your master regulator. Um, and the hormones that it takes, the inputs that it takes in include things like mechanical signals from your body. So your esophagus and your stomach as you eat food. Um, it senses glucose, it senses insulin, it senses hormones that are released by your digestive system as different macros are digested. So different hormones are released as fats are digested, as proteins are digested. Um, it has sensors for other hormones from your body. So it has sensors for estradiol, progesterone, thyroid hormones, um, stress hormones. So it's, it's like, it takes in all of these different inputs, it synthesizes them and then sends out control signals to other parts of your body. So it's, it's amazing. It's and it's really cool when you learn about all the different things that it can do. Um, so the amenorrhea part is a uh, lack of a period. So the technical definition is not having a menstrual period for three months. Um, you know, I find that there can be menstrual disturbances that happen sooner than three months, you know, three months is kind of a it's a little bit arbitrary. I mean, if you're somebody who's been regular all your life and all of a sudden you miss a period, you know, one is okay. More than one, probably there's something going on that you should think about. Um, I think the other thing that's really important to also talk about is that hypothalamic amenorrhea is a component of what we now call relative energy deficiency in sport. Um, it used to be called female athlete triad. You know, it's sort of there's a, a lot of different ways of thinking about it, but I, I think it's really important to note that this, um, so hypothalamic amenorrhea happens when basically your hypothalamus gets shut down and gets suppressed and um, your it then doesn't control your reproductive system in the same way. So then you don't have, uh, you know, you don't ovulate, you don't get a period, but that's really a symptom and not, you know, it's not really a cause. And so, it's important to note that this is not something that just happens to people with a uterus or pe you know, people who, you know, female, 
Um, so it's something that can happen to men, people without a uterus, um, you know, people who aren't, you know, don't have a, aren't menstruating for other reasons. So it's really what it comes down to is that your body is out of balance, out of whack, suppressed, you know, things aren't going the way that they're supposed to. Um, from an evolutionary perspective, uh, this happened because, uh, you know, when we were hunter gatherers, you know, there might be times when uh, there was a famine or, you know, food was less available. And so um, it was not an ideal time to reproduce. So the menstrual cycle would shut down or for male people, for males, the, you know, the hormonal system was such that the, you know, libido would be reduced, um, you know, sperm quality would be reduced. That basically so that we're not having babies at times when it's not ideal for our body to be reproducing. Um, so that was a long answer. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. We like long, long answers. Obviously, there are lots of, lots of little topics to get into here, but I really do want to say from the start that this is not something that just affects women. Um, you know, so it's important to know that uh, men can experience a lot of the same effects just not the missing menstrual period. So it's one place where being, uh, you know, we're having a uterus, being a woman is actually beneficial in some ways because we kind of get an early warning that things aren't quite right. Whereas for somebody that doesn't have that signal, um, you know, it might take longer to sort of understand that your body is not actually happy with what you're doing. Um, same thing is true for somebody who's on, say, um, an IUD or uh, birth control pills. That can mask some of, you know, the immediate effect of noticing a missing period, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that your body is any happier with you than if you, you know, if you're not on some kind of hormonal um, contraception. So, I mean, I guess what we're talking about is the brain, right? Like, and everybody's mm -hmm. got similar systems in the brain. It just produces different things in the body, depending on what body you've got. So yep. does this mean that the hypothalamus is like the control room? It speaks to the pituitary gland, which speaks to the ovaries or the testes? Yep. Yes. Okay, cool. Exactly. So it's like, it all yep. goes back to that, right? Which is so interesting to me. I remember hearing someone explain when you get your period back, your ovaries and pituitary gland are learning to speak to each other again, learning to like mm -hmm. communicate again. And I was like, oh, okay. That's a really interesting take on it. So yep. when we lose our period, the, you know, and like you said, I think it's so interesting that we often look at, well, you've lost your period or for men, maybe it's like morning erections have disappeared mm -hmm. and really yep. irregular yep. or erectile dysfunction. And it's like, okay, yes. those um, sometimes are the red flags, but the cause could be environmental. It's stress, it's mm -hmm. eating, it's training, it's all those things. So, um, what actually is happening when we, like, I know you spoke about like, Hey, the system's just going to get shut down because it's not an ideal environment for us to reproduce in what is happening? Is it the hypothalamus gets suppressed and then that no longer signals to the other glands or is it like, what's the, what's the actual, what happens? I know our, our hormones will drop down. What's the actual process that's going on? So really what's happening is that the hypothalamus gets suppressed and it no longer sends out signals to the pituitary in the same way. So in a normal working body, the hypothalamus is sending out, um, pulses of a hormone called gonadotropin releasing hormone every two to four hours, something like that. I mean, obviously everybody's different, you know, and it's, it's, it's biology. Nothing is, nothing is like clockwork. Um, 
But so that is the signal that goes to the pituitary gland. And then the pituitary secretes follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH, or luteinize, and luteinizing hormone, LH. Um, we and can't measure gonadotropin-releasing hormone. Yes. That's in yes, men and is. women. Hey, and it's actually... Yeah, okay, cool. Yes. Yeah. And it's fascinating because it's one place where the hormones were defined by their function in women. So it's still called follicle stimulating hormone in men, even though men do not have follicles and it's still called glutenizing oh, hormone. Interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I was fascinated when I found that out. And actually the FSH and LH are um, play strong roles in the development of, um, you know, sort of development of sperm and, uh, the maturation of sperm that's happening, you know, in a male body. So um, the the function of the hormone is very similar in that way, in that it leads to maturation of the necessary components of reproduction, um, but just named for what they do in women. So mm -hmm. I, I actually kind of like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh now i've lost my train of thought so go back to what you were so um, uh the hormones again, what please. happens when you lose your period you started talking about everything mm. being suppressed yes yes so what what generally starts to happen is that as the hypothalamus becomes suppressed over time um it's usually through underfueling for your body's needs um, so I, I'll often say that I think of the hypothalamus as being uh, as following Newton's first law. So an object in motion stays in motion, an object at rest stays at rest. So uh, I find that people can do a lot of high intensity exercise and menstrual cycles will stay pretty consistent. A little bit of underfueling, but once the underfueling gets too significant, then the hypothalamus is, you know, can't manage it anymore. And so it gets suppressed and, you know, then you, then now things are suppressed and then you have to work a little bit harder to get them to start back up again. Um, so, yeah, so the follicle stimulating hormone is actually sort of the driver of the menstrual cycle, but the menstrual cycle is like a perpetual motion machine. So each hormone follows on from the previous hormone. So in a normal cycle, after you ovulate, the, the follicle bursts and releases the egg. And then the cells that were sort of surrounding the egg and helping it to grow and mature change and secrete. Now they now they secrete estrogen and progesterone to maintain the uterine lining in your body's hopes of being pregnant. Um, if you're not pregnant, the corpus luteum degrades, progesterone drops, which is what causes the menstrual bleed, and estrogen drops. And that drop in estrogen signals to the hypothalamus to then speed up, start in that goes to your um, pituitary, which starts producing more follicle-stimulating hormone, and the whole thing starts all over again. So when the hypothalamus is suppressed, it's not getting that signal. It's not starting the follicular growth cycle, and you're basically just at baseline all the time. So you've got estrogen lower, which means progesterone is lower as well. Is there a case where people end up with too much estrogen and not enough progesterone? Or will all of them drop down? Typically, they all drop down. Um, progesterone is really only um, meaningful in that it sort of it rises after ovulation, and you know then it's sort of high, and then if you haven't ovulated, it's low. That's really all that progesterone is is doing. I mean, it has a lot of other functions in the body, obviously, but in terms of the menstrual cycle, that's that's what it is. So. I don't really even look at progesterone unless I'm mm -hmm. trying to figure out has somebody ovulated or not. Um, mm -hmm. So 
estrogen typically will just stay low when somebody has hypothalamic amenorrhea, REDS, do not play, try it, whatever you want to call it. Um, so it's just a baseline all the time, basically. Um, in a normal menstrual cycle, it really only goes up when there is a follicle that's growing. So as the follicle is growing and maturing, it starts secreting more estrogen. When that estrogen gets to a threshold level, then you have a luteinizing hormone surge that causes ovulation. Um, and then after ovulation, the corpus luteum starts producing estrogen. So then you have another bump in estrogen. So those two times right before ovulation and sort of the time between ovulation and when you get your period, that's when estrogen is at its highest. And that's what's really good for bone density. Um, so if you're not, if you're not getting a menstrual cycle, then your estradiol is sort of at a baseline all the time. And that can be problematic for bone growth and maintenance, particularly in the longer term. Um, so that's one of the big, bigger issues with sort of long-term amenorrhea is um, lack of, you know, a decrease in bone density that can obviously impact you for, you know, a long time, particularly when, particularly, particularly when you're older. Yeah, I think that's a actually a very scary and real negative repercussion of not having a period for an extended amount of time or mm -hmm. being irregular. Because I think, you know, for so many, especially athletes who are training when they're young, it's like, it's inconsequential to not have a period. And for many, it's like, oh, well, it's kind of helpful because I have really bad symptoms with a period yep. or it's annoying on comp day. And so they don't worry about it. But then it's like, hey, in 30, 40, 50 years, we have females who, you know, they fall over and break a hip and they would almost rather be dead than have to go through hip, sur hip replacement surgery. And it's it's just something that's too far removed from us to feel yeah. a sense of urgency around yeah. it. Um, and I think the other thing is that we're also often told that exercise is good for your bones. And so you think, oh, I'm doing all this high intensity mm -hmm. exercise. You know, my bones are going to be amazing. With, uh, and, you know, so a lot of doctors will say, oh, don't worry about your missing period. It's not a big deal. You're an athlete. You've got, you know, your bones are going to be great. Not understanding that if you're exercising without the, without the higher levels of estrogen, that it's not actually doing very much for your bones because estrogen mm -hmm. is really important in that process of breaking down and remaking bones. And so if you don't have the estrogen present, you're not building bone in the way that you should be even depending on, you know, even with a large amount of exercise or, you know, the right types of exercise for bone growth. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I think ultimately many of us get into health and fitness because we are trying to improve our health and along the mm -hmm. way you get caught up in all the fun of it and suddenly you're taking yep. it to a bit more of an extreme end doing whatever your sport is and whatever competitive, you know, yes. sense you do it in. But, um, you know, that that is what we're trying to do. So what are some of the other, you know, either short-term, mid-term or long-term health consequences of not having a period? I, I know that there's a fairly strong correlation between heart disease and an irregular cycle. Is that true? Um, that's where sort of investigating. There's a lot of ongoing research. Um, so some of the side effects that are mentioned in my book um, are sort of taken from what happens to people after they go through surgical menopause? So somebody who has a hysterectomy mm. and has their ovaries removed, you know, we can we can very clearly see that there is an increased risk of heart disease at that point. There is an increased risk of decreased bone density. There does seem to be um, more tendency towards uh, dementia, um, so some other brain um, 
uh, abnormalities. I wouldn't, you know, um, just sort of losing plasticity in your brain. So, you know, it's hard to know if you're missing a period for a year or two, like what really the negative effects are um, in terms of that aspect. Um, but there are lots of other things that are associated with the underfueling. So it's also a little bit hard to tease out what's really based on the underfueling, what's based on the lack of the hormonal fluctuations that you have when you have amenorrhea um, oh, or the baseline hormones being low. So things like a lot of people have um, GI distress, you know, it might be um, they're diagnosed with inflammatory bowel syndrome. They might just experience a lot of constipation, um, you know, bloating, those kinds of things. Um, and that gets challenging because so much of our society this, these days is like, oh, you're having GI distress. Well, it must be these foods that you're eating. So let's cut out gluten. Let's cut out dairy. Let's become vegetarian. And so then a lot of times when you do those things, you actually end up restricting eating even fewer calories. And then, you know, the whole, all the whole symptoms just worsen. So in that way, that can, that can often be a slippery slope. So you start with a little bit of underfueling because, you know, you're just, sometimes it's deliberate. Sometimes it's, you know, you want to look a particular way, you have a competition, you want to lose weight. Sometimes it's unintentional. You start doing a type of exercise you enjoy, you're doing more training, you don't think about adding food, maybe you don't feel hungry from your food, you know, so many different ways that it happens. But then you have this GI distress and you start cutting out more things. And, you know, next thing you know, you're real, you're significantly underfueling and you feel worse and worse, your performance degrades over time. Um, you know, that's, so that's a, that's a big issue that I see with starting with underfueling. Um, there can be effects on your immune system. Um, I recently actually saw a paper that showed that um, athletes were more likely to um, be uh, acquire a virus right after doing high intensity exercise. Um, so I thought that was mm. fascinating, you know, so your immune system gets a little bit suppressed and, you know, but more, even more so if you're under fueling because it takes energy for your body to make immune cells. I mean, it like so much of it makes so much sense. Um, you know, and when your body isn't getting enough fuel, it has to sort of decide where to put that energy that it's expending. Um, yeah. You know, if you're somebody who's doing a lot of high intensity exercise, your body is, your, your muscles are moving. That energy is gone. Like that energy is not available for other things. So then your body basically has to take whatever is left and use it for digestion. You know, digestion takes about 10% of what we eat. I mean, your body has to make enzymes. Your muscles have to move. Like nobody ever tells you that when they tell you go on a diet. Um, <laughs> you know, um, you have to, um, you know, there's your, your, lungs ha you have to breathe your heart has to pump your blood your brain needs energy like all those things that your body has to then start portioning out like what things are most important so a lot of times when people are under fueling they find that they feel cold all the time because that's an easy thing for your body to stop doing is spending energy on making you warm um you know a lot of people find they're also mental health um uh, symptoms, you know, people find they're more anxious, they find they're focusing on food all the time. Um, you know, that's one of your body's ways of making you feel hungry is thinking about food. And, you know, but we don't realize that. So we're just like, Oh, I'm thinking about food all the time. And, you know, not realizing that's your body saying, I, I kind of need a little bit more. Um, you know, so sometimes people think, Oh, I'm not hungry until my stomach is growling. But 
from my perspective, that's kind of your body saying, oh my God, I need food right now. Um, you know, so all, all these things, I mean, underfeeling has so many negative impacts on us. Um, and it's just, it's a little bit, it's, it's a challenge because our society really encourages underfueling, um, you know, particularly for athletes, which is so counterintuitive, um, you know, and I think really we perform our best, we're at our strongest when we are giving the body the energy that it needs for all those daily functions, for our daily movement, for our digestion, and for all the fun exercise that we're doing. So... Yeah, it's funny. It's really hard to help athletes, especially in the CrossFit space. You know, so many of us are like, well, I'm going to be the most competitive if I'm Melina. And I spend a lot of time trying to convince athletes that you're actually going to be better when you're stronger, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to a lot of the gymnastics that we do. And we have very much a mixed modal sport. So you do have to have the ability to move your body weight very well. But because we're typically doing high volume pull-ups or muscle-ups or something along those lines, you're actually more benefit, you're benefiting your performance more by having more muscle. So I'm trying mm -hmm. to get people to understand like skinny can help, but if you're not able to get stronger, you're actually just putting yourself at a disadvantage in terms of performance. So it's not, hey, I'm going to lean up by cutting down my calories. I'm like, the only way I would let an athlete lean up is by being at maintenance calories mm -hmm. and pushing training intensity up. I'm like, no, just focus on training really hard and getting stronger. And the byproduct of eating, eating at maintenance and getting your health optimized is your body will be in a better position to actually discard any excess fat. Like it will, mm -hmm. I've seen athletes lean up better at maintenance than some of the athletes, especially when it comes to observing performance results. The athletes that eat a little bit more and don't worry about trying to cut a lot of weight, performance will skyrocket compared to the athletes that are eating less, who eventually lose a period, who eventually get all hung mm -hmm. up around food. It becomes mm -hmm. quite a miserable experience one yeah. and their performance, yeah. like the long term of that is, is performance is going to be impacted ne negatively. Yeah. Even yeah. things like I getting sick trying to get people to eat more food. If they're trying to lose weight or lean up, I'm like, the minute you get sick, increase your calories, go back to maintenance, if not a little bit more for that period. And then you can go back down if you really feel the need to, but man, same thing, getting sick. Like, I love what you said. It's like your gut, your immune system, your lungs, like just moving blood around your body. They take a percentage of your daily energy intake. I love slamming people with the fact of your brain is going to take like 20 to 25% of your energy intake. Like, yeah. <laughs> it like yes. one of my biggest <laughs> hunger signals. I know I'm hungry when I can't focus. That is one of the mm -hmm. first hunger signals that I get. I'm like, I'm, mm -hmm. I just like can't get any work done today. <laughs> I'm like trying to write this email and I've written the same sentence five times. What's going on? I'm like, I actually need to eat some food. That's my hunger signal. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people who are consistently under fueling do notice that they can't think that well. And, you know, I, so I, I work with a ton of people who sort of are in this mode of, you know, I need to be as lean as possible. I need to, you know, I want to lose weight. I want to quote unquote, look my best. Um, and they just find that once they start actually eating the fuel, getting the fuel that they need, they're able to think better. Um, they're able, you know, they're less anxious, you know, they, it's just a, easier to move through the day, honestly. What role do estrogen and progesterone, and I'll even throw in the mix testosterone, what, mm -hmm. you know, I guess a lot of people are like, ah, periods are annoying and I have all these ups and downs with the cycle and I have, you know, high hormones in my week before my period and I feel like shit. 
but what are the benefits of having your period for performance? So the actual bleed itself, it doesn't really do much of anything. So, you know, I think that the what's much more important is the hormonal changes that come with ovulation and having mm-hmm. a period is just kind of a side effect of that. So um, if somebody's struggling a lot with a period, like the bleed, cramping around periods, um, I will actually recommend the hormonal IUD um, that tends to continue to allow you to ovulate because the hormones are quite low and localized, but it does prevent you from bleeding generally. You know, somebody, some people might get a small, you know, much smaller amount of blood. Some people will have no blood whatsoever, but you do continue to ovulate. So I, I've had, I've had a Mirena IUD myself for seven years. Um, I can, I can track my ovulation through tracking my temperature, my cervical oh, mucus. I've had my hormones oh. drawn, you know, my hormones still change up and down the way that they're supposed to. So you get the benefits of ovulation without the without the bleed. So I'll leave that there for people um, mm, to mm. chew on. Um, you know, I am not somebody who's really focused on sort of the ins and outs of the different phases of the menstrual cycle and how that impacts performance. Um, I know that uh, Dr. Stacy Sims has been more focused on that. Um, you know, I. Different people have different takes on things. I tend to really focus on um, fueling well, and I don't love the underfueling or like deliberate underfueling at any time. I really like, I have a hard time sort of supporting that because I just see it as a slippery slope. She's a little bit different on that. You know, so you can check out her work and see, um, you know, see what you think of it. But she she does focus more on the individual aspects of the menstrual cycle and how that impacts, um, how that impacts performance. Personally, I don't really notice a different a difference in performance based on where I am in my cycle. So for me, ovulation doesn't really seem to make a difference. Um, you know, my sport is ice hockey, though, so it's uh, you know maybe a little bit less um, up and down than you know than some of the figure sports or you know maybe CrossFit as well. I don't know. I've never really done that, so. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, I think any information you get can play and uh, in, in impact how you perceive your cycle. And, uh, if, you know, one of the things that Stacey Sims says is like the first day of your cycle or the week of your cycle, it's like, it's an advantage. And so to not consider like that to be a bad week of training. Um, and I know for me, the week of my period, I'm actually pretty good in terms of training. Mm-hmm. I feel a lot better mm-hmm. that week. It's always the week prior to my cycle that, you know, I experience things like not sleeping as well. My hunger mm-hmm. is usually much higher. I have a, I have a wild appetite and I just cannot be satisfied. My uh-huh. heart rate tends to increase my heart, my heart rate will jack up in training. And I'm like, man, I feel like I'm working really hard just mm-hmm. to hit a moderate level of intensity. Like this wouldn't normally feel so challenging for me. Um, what else do I experience? A little bit of less coordination. So sometimes in my mm-hmm. warm up, I have the sense of my body being like on a one second delay <laughs> to what oh, my wow. brain's telling it to do. <laughs> I'm like, why am I? I'm just a little bit like clumsy or like a little bit out of it. We used to, um, mm-hmm. 
at my previous gym, we used to play volleyball just as a game before the session began. And we would all hang out and we'd play a little game of volleyball, not even with a proper volleyball. It was like with one of those like kids soft softball, kind of like yeah. tiny little squishy yeah. balls. So it wasn't a serious game, but it was always a nice little insight into what my body was doing that day. Because mm. I, I, some days I'd be able to hit that ball and like coordinate it really well. Some days it was like, oh no, <laughs> it's going to be one of those kinds of days. Okay. So mm-hmm. like some of those little things kind of tend to stand out, but everybody's going to be a, a little bit different. But um, yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of information around, you'll feel like this at this part of your period, you'll feel like this at this part of your period, you shouldn't train hard here, you should train hard here, you shouldn't do and it's like, you know what, everybody mm-hmm. is going to be quite different. And Absolutely. for me, I've had multiple personal bests the day my period begins. I have mm-hmm. always had my period in competition. It's just the timing. <laughs> and it's like, you know, anyone who's like, you can't perform as well, you shouldn't be pushing yourself. It's like, look, you will actually have the capacity to do quite a lot. And yeah, <laughs> I think a lot of it comes down to what you believe you can and can't do often more times than not. And obviously with the expectation that you're still fueling yourself and still taking care of your body. I think that has to be, that has to be the environment for you to not be negatively impacted by your cycle. You have to be fueling yourself. Yep. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, all of these things about like you, you know, you will perform best when like, that's not true for everybody. Like we have, there's such a wide spectrum of experiences. Um, You know, anything, anybody that tells you something like that, you know, that's just an average and you could be outside of that average. You could be completely different. You know, somebody else could find that their worst performance is on the day they get their period. And that's okay. You need to get to know your own body and your own system and what works for you. Um, You know, that's one of the things I would say to people about amenorrhea is that you know, we all have different genetics. So you can have two people who sort of superficially seem to be doing exactly the same things in terms of fueling and exercise. One of them can have their period and the other one cannot. And it's because, you know, there are all these little mutations in proteins and receptors and the way that they're working together. And, you know, so maybe maybe I'm a little bit more sensitive, you know, in fact, I know I'm a little bit more sensitive because my luteal phase is typically only about 10 or 11 days you know, a normal quote unquote luteal phase is 12 to 14. So I know I have a hypothalamic sensitivity. Um, and, you know, it's just, we're all different. So we just have to figure out what, what works for us. You know, I just will say that generally most people perform better when they're fueling better. You know, most people will find that their periods will come back if they eat enough for their body's daily needs cut down on high intensity exercise. Some people have to cut it out entirely. You know, that all sort of depends on the sensitivity of your individual system. Um, but I can pretty much guarantee, you know, unless there's something else going on, because there can be many other reasons that people don't have a period or lose their period. You know, there can be things like premature ovarian insufficiency. Um, you can have hyperlactin levels that can prevent a period. You know, if your thyroid is off, that can prevent a period. So, you know, I always say like diagnosis is important too. I mean, if you know you've suddenly, you've started under fueling and you lose your period. Yeah. It's probably because of the under fueling, but you know, there can be other reasons as well. So it's always good to sort of check in, go see your doctor, get a, get a hormonal panel drawn, um, read my book so you know what hormones to get because doctors often don't know that much about amenorrhea. Oh, and so they'll, you yes. know, they'll test estrogen and be like, your estrogen is normal. What's wrong? You know, everything's fine. Like, you know, have, let's, you know, a little deeper understanding yeah. is necessary. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
and I don't pretend to be able to read blood work. It's not something that I know how to do, but I've had many, many years of blood work done. And now the things that I get tested are totally different and much mm -hmm. more extensive. And I know what I'm looking for. And I, I also know who to talk to about reading them and interpreting them better for me. I've had, mm -hmm. you know, one, one year I had blood work done. I had a GP look at it and I had a naturopath look at it. And then a, a year later, a new GP looked at the same blood blood test results and they all told me totally different things and I was mm -hmm. like I mm -hmm. what what is going on you know a year later after having been told my this was high and this was high a year later with the same results someone's like oh your, your hormones are totally flat and I'm like hang on a minute I had two people last year <laughs> I'm just like oh god so the blood work stuff is it is challenging to get a general practitioner who by you know definition of their name that general practitioners to give you a deeper interpretation of your work so of your blood yeah. work so yeah I think that's a really big piece of the puzzle speaking of blood work how much do you feel like and people talk about environmental toxins how mm -hmm. much do you feel like they contribute to issues with either amenorrhea or fertility just general you know fertility I guess is what we're talking about if you lose your cycle you you lose fertility. How much do you think things like our skincare and hair care products and cleaning products and what pans we cook on, like how much do you feel like they play a role in all of this? So I don't think that those have much of an impact in terms of amenorrhea. That's a more mm -hmm. global, it's a, you know, it's a bigger issue. Um, in terms of overall fertility, um, you know, certainly it's, it's hard to see how you know, our bodies having a lot of plastic in them can't have a negative impact on things. Um, you know, so I, you know, I don't think, I mean, certainly when I was trying to get pregnant, I didn't re completely revamp my skincare routine, but I don't have much of a skincare routine anyway, because I just don't have time for this stuff. You know, <laughs> I think one of the things that I've sort of learned as I've gotten older and wiser is, you know, I, I just see so much marketing that's targeted at us and you know i so i choose to not engage with a lot of that you know i'm i'm almost 50 i have wrinkles i have gray hair you know what it's who i am i i feel like it's um you know it's a badge of honor honestly and you know so i'm not going out and getting botox i'm not spending money on you know the latest face creams to try and you know all, all of that stuff anyway that's a little <laughs> bit of a pet peeve. <laughs> um, you know, so I don't know. Um, I think that there's, there are a few things that I think are, you know, we know have a negative impact, like BPA and, you know, microwaving food and plastic. Like those are easy things, easy changes to make to sort of clean out your system a little bit, um, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of uh, sort of nutritionally, um, I don't really find that there are sort of particular foods that one eats to be more or less fertile. I mean, you know, you'll hear don't eat too much tofu, you know, you have to eat a lot of tofu for it to impact your hormones. Um, you know, caffeine, same thing, like, you know, a cup of coffee a day. I actually just saw a study recently that found that um, there was no change in cortisol in people who had a regular cup of coffee in the morning, you know. So, I mean, some people will say, oh, you know, coffee increases cortisol and that's bad for you. Like, yeah, you know, I think that everything in moderation is fine for the most part. Um, 
you know, the dose makes the poison. I mean, we, you can always say water can be poisonous if you drink too much water. So, <laughs> you know, I think that it's And I just, mean, what are the negative impacts of the fear around it that we all right, like kind of pick up right. along the way? It's exactly. like the stress of that, yes. trying to control your intake. It's like, yep. hey, mitigate it where you can. If you can avoid yep. <laughs> eating up your pre-made food in, in plastic, that's a great point. Yep. Great start. Yep. And, and, you yes. know, don't, don't stress yep. about it. Yeah. And, you know, I think another thing that I find really interesting is that we're fear of disease is really harsh on us. Like, don't do this, you know, don't eat too much sugar because you're going to get diabetes. Don't do don't eat too much fat because you're going to get heart disease. And yet people who are, you know, underweight for their body, under fueling for their body's needs, don't have a period, but they're doing it because they're afraid of heart disease. 20 years from now, I'm like, dude, you're not healthy right now. Like, let's focus on now. Yeah. <laughs> and let's, you know, let's fuel our bodies well now. Let's get our period back. And then, you know, then you can think about like changing your diet a little bit to make it, you know, a little bit quote unquote healthier. But, you know, so many people avoid like avoid, you know, avoid all sugar or avoid all processed foods. And it, you know, A, it's stressful. It takes a lot of energy. Um, B, you know, it's sort of in in service of this fear down the road, but not focusing on, are you actually healthy right now? And, you know, I would argue that if you don't have a period, you're not entirely healthy. Your body is telling you that something is wrong. Yeah. It's like a big red flag going, Hey, yeah. check under the hood. Yeah. Something's wrong. Yes. Yeah. It's yes. funny. I would, I have certainly seen in my circles because you know, it's, it's ironic that we all talk about chronic disease and long-term health consequences, but a lot of the people that I'm talking to are the fit. I'm talking mm -hmm. to the fit about getting fitter. And for mm -hmm. so many of those, and I'm going to say like athlete archetypes, they are the ones that are very susceptible to the fears of yeah. gluten and dairy and, oh, I should never have bread and mm -hmm. I can't eat whatever particular food they shouldn't eat. Processed food, oh my goodness, absolutely not. I can't put that in my body. And those are the ones that actually will find they have a tendency to under eat and mm -hmm. then train really hard. Mm -hmm. And yep. so, you know, there's, I haven't helped an athlete that's lost their period yet. That's overweight. I'm helping. They're all athletes that are very lean and train mm -hmm. a lot and focused intensely on their health and they want to be their fittest. So they want to look their best. Those are the athletes that are actually the unhealthy ones, ironically, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for those yeah. athletes, what are the steps? And this is going to be general information. And, you know, Nicola does coaching. And if you need more help with this, you need to speak to Nicola. Uh, she is the master. But if you have people coming to you that let's say they're a CrossFitter, they've been, you know, training and competing for a couple of years. So they're relatively experienced, but maybe they've been taking the next step or they're back in the competition season and they've lost their period for three months. What do you, first of all, what things do you look at with regards to their overall either food or lifestyle? And then what are some of the first changes that you essentially prescribe to people to follow to get their period back? So the biggest thing is the amount of energy that you're getting. So, you know, you have to think about, like I said before, you know, 10% of what you eat goes to digestion. You're spending, you're spending energy on your basal metabolic rate every day. That's, you know, that's your heart beating, your blood pumping, your breathing, your cells making protein and DNA and enzymes. Um, 
daily movement, you know, walking around to go to the bathroom, to go to the post box, to, you know, cook your meals. Um, and then, so your body needs all of that. And then it needs energy for any planned movement that you're doing. So exercise. Um, so if you're not getting enough to support all of those, which typically if you've lost your period, you're not, the number one thing is increasing the amount of food you're eating. Um, I'd like to say people should eat some carbs, some fat, some protein. Um, you know, I have seen other practitioners say X percentage of this, Y percentage of that. None of that is evidence supported as far as I've seen. Um, so I don't, I don't prescribe any particular macro ratio or anything like that. Um, cause that's, that adds stress, tracking, counting calories, all of that is stressful. And I like to remove as much stress as possible from this whole situation. Um, so some carbs and fats and protein with every meal or snack. The other thing that I find is quite important is eating regularly through the day. Um, and particularly starting the day with a good nourishing breakfast. Um, so there was a study that was done in Sweden a few years ago, uh, a group of elite athletes, these women were all eating about 3,500 calories a day and burning about a thousand in exercise. So net of 2,500 calories which on the surface, you think that should be enough for anybody. Like that's a lot of energy. Anybody should be getting their period with that. Some of the women were, and some of them weren't. So the researchers were like, well, what's going on here? This doesn't make sense. Um, so they looked at what they called within day energy balance. So that's basically on an hourly basis, figuring out how much the women were consuming and then how much they were burning for all those things that we just talked about. And they found that the women that did not have their periods were in an energy deficit for four hours more per day than those who did. So they were eating the same amount and burning the same amount, but the way that they were spreading their food through the day meant that they were in an energy deficit more. People with HA, that tends to be waking up in the morning, going to the gym, you know, spending an hour or two there. You're not super hungry after you've exercised, so you wait a couple hours. So, you know, it's, oh, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock before you eat. That's, you know, a good three, four, five hours where your body is basically like, I have no energy. I'm in an energy deficit. So your hypothalamus is getting all those signals like, I'm, you know, I'm not getting enough food. I'm not getting enough food. Danger, danger, danger. And then even, even if you eat and you sort of fill up your tank later in the day, that doesn't overcome that negative impact from the beginning of the day. And a lot of us do this every single day. And so every single day, our yep. hypothalamus is getting these signals, energy deficit, warning, warning. And, you know, there you go. There's your missing period. So I have seen some people simply start intermittent fasting and lose their periods. You know, that's not really a thing that's yeah. talked about in the intermittent fasting community, but, you know, it's certainly... Um, it happens. Same thing with keto. You know, somebody will start keto and lose their period. That's because our hypothalamus senses glucose and insulin. And when it's not getting the signals anymore, it's like, uh oh, something's wrong. You know, what's, you know, so it gets suppressed and it shuts down your reproductive system. Um, so I think mm. those are really the major things. The other thing is high intensity exercise. So high intensity exercise increases our cortisol levels. Um, cortisol suppresses the hypothalamus. Interestingly, some of the um, um, the uh, I'm trying to remember which which neurochemical it is, but some of the the, chem the neurochemicals that make you feel good also suppress your hypothalamus. So um, 
that's problematic if you're in a sport like CrossFit that's got a lot of high intensity stuff. So some people can simply get their periods back by eating the amount of energy their body needs. Some of us can't. Some people have to cut down or cut out the high intensity exercise for the time being in order to kind of let their hypothalamus know, sort of remove all the suppressive signals. It's safe to start things back up again. Um, yeah. So, you know, yeah, I was, what sorry, I, what I'll, I'll, I'll jump do, in really. Okay. Yeah. The, 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 I try to get people on a protocol of having their rest to make sure that they actually give their body time to get back to like homeostasis after training. Mm -hmm. Um, I, that's so interesting about the long gaps in the middle of the day or in the morning, um, because so many people are in that routine. So Mm -hmm. many people are in that routine and people don't understand when you tell them, Hey, even if you train at 5am, like have a piece of toast before training, mm-hmm. just something mm-hmm. and then eat immediately after people are like, Oh, but I train early. I don't really want to eat. And I'm like, no, trust me. You're, you're yeah. one, you're going to feel better Two, You need it. Yeah. Um, that's super important. Like that, that's, it's like, that's the critical time really around your training. It's like, that's the critical time to be having yeah. food. Um, and then with the, with the recovery, um, a lot of CrossFitters do split days. So they'll mm-hmm. train in the morning and they'll train in the afternoon. And they mm-hmm. say, well, but I only do, you know, one to one and a half hours at each session instead of doing one big, long two, two and a half hour session. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, do mm-hmm. you know what? I would actually prefer you did one slightly longer session than two split sessions. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think people realize that what they do is not only are they, you know, having to do two warm ups and two cool downs and two high intensity and two jack up all your, you know, stress hormones and, and have that process that your body goes through twice a day. But now you've effectively cut your recovery time in half Mm, rather mm -hmm. than 24 hours you're going to 12 to eight hours for recovery like there's no (laughs) there's no one there's no reason to do that and two like you're just making your body work twice as hard for Mm -hmm. ultimately what you're saying or claiming to be the same amount of work because you're just splitting it in half i'm like look do one session a day just do one session a day that's one really simple method to try and get people to pull back mm-hmm. and then have a rest day in the middle of the week yeah. and i think one thing that crossfitters forget is crossfit was designed to be 3 days on 1 day off mm-hmm. it was never meant to be more than that in fact mm-hmm. i believe they even tested 2 days on 1 day off because what they were trying to figure out is how can we get people to keep main intensity high and when they get beyond three days, people start to get tired yep. <laughs> and you see it yeah. in the training yeah. and people start to lower down their intensity. And it's like, we need to have a rest. You need to mm-hmm. have a full rest day somewhere in the middle of the week and in the weekend. And so that's yeah. one of the most basic things. I'm like one session a day, two full rest days. One of them needs to be during the middle of the week. And yeah. it's like, people are like, no, but I've, I've got to have that extra day. I've got to have this. I've got to make sure I do these things. And it's like, no, if you want to perform, you want long-term like longevity in your in the sport, you yeah. need to dial it back in order to get the most out of training as well as get the most out of your health. Yeah. I mean, it gives your body time to repair and, you know, it can't, some repair is breaking down and rebuilding. And if you're not doing any rest, then your body never has that chance. So a lot of people that I work with sort of, have gotten into this mindset of exercise is good, so more exercise is better. And so I'm gonna exercise for hours every day. I'm never gonna take a rest day because, um, you know, oh my God, like, I mean, here the fear aspect comes in again. Like you hear, oh, well, you know, if you don't exercise, then you're, you know, you're all these bad things happen, you know, you lose muscle, you lose fitness, you know. And so there's sort of this idea that if I don't exercise for one day, I'm, this is gonna happen. I'm gonna turn into a puddle of jelly. I'm like, 
it's not how biology works. Um, you know, <laughs> and so I think it's really important to recognize that our bodies need that rest so that they can repair. So when I work with people who have been sort of doing this daily exercise and I'm like, you just need to take some time off, let your body kind of re-equilibrate, recalibrate. They'll tell me like, oh my God, I feel like I've been hit by a truck. I feel like I can't move. I, you know, I, I can't, I can't even walk without getting out of breath, you know, oh my God, like I've lost all my fitness. I'm like, it's just your body kind of breaking things down and rebuilding them. And, you know, you will feel better in a little while. For some people, it's just a few days. For some people, it's a little longer than that. You know, again, we're all different. Um, there's no, I like to say there's no one, one size fits all recovery. We each have a different path that we took to get to losing our periods and we each have a different path that we take to recovery. Um, so I had a mentor tell me, he uh, challenged me when I was like, oh, I don't want to rest too much. He was like, he's Australian. He's like, uh-huh. mate, your fitness is not that fragile. Mm-hmm. Like, are you serious? Your fitness yes, is not that exactly. fragile. You've been doing exactly. this for years. You've put in hours and hours and hours of work. It doesn't disappear like that. Your biggest, like the, the culprit here is your fear of that happening. Mm-hmm. And then you're yeah. looking for evidence of it. It's like, yes. that, it's not happening. You yeah. need to let go. Uh, and, and like, I think, you know, for some people, I actually had a discussion recently with someone who's like, oh, but, but I do it for like, you know, it's my mental mm. well-being and health mm-hmm. practice. And I'm like, yeah, well, absolutely. then why? Why do we not have some kind of rest day deliberate practice? Just yeah. as much as you have a yep. working out deliberate I practice, love you should have a recovery. It's like, you know, do an easy walk, do your mobility. Like that should be a practice that you bring a plan and a strategy to and you do that thing. Even if it's like getting in a sauna or like, you know, something going for an ocean swim. I live by the beach here. Mm-hmm. Like that mm-hmm. should have as much intentionality as the training days. You know, yes. there should be ways for you to get that same positive feedback mentally that you do on, on the hard workouts. You should be able to find other means to get that. Yep. Yeah. So as I was saying before, some people can recover their periods while still doing some level of intense exercise. For a lot of people, we do need to cut out the high intense, high intensity exercise for a while. You know, it can be, um, I've seen people recover in as little as six weeks the median time to recovery is about three months. Um, some people take a little bit longer than that. Um, so that, you know, that can be a big challenge. If you're somebody who I so, who sort of identifies as an athlete, like to take that amount of time off can be, you know, really difficult. But it's it's a time that can be filled with personal growth as well. You know, you can pay, take up some new hobbies that you haven't had time for in the past. You know, you can really you know, be intentional, more intentional, as you're saying about your walking and, you know, stress relief through gentler exercise, gentler movement, spending more time hanging out with friends and family. You know, that's, that's a real bonus that people notice when they're not spending two or three hours a day in the gym anymore. It's like having some time to really build on their personal relationships, which are beneficial in other ways. Um, And, you know, it's, I've, so I, I've, my recommendation for somebody trying to recover their period is to keep their heart rate at about 100 beats per minute or less. Um, you know, originally when I first wrote my book, I said 140 because, like I said, I'm an ice hockey player. So, like, 140 to me is nothing. You know? Yeah, that's um, gonna say. And then, you know, and then I got a I got a heart rate tracker of my own, and I was like, oh crap! Like 140 is about 70 to 75 percent of max intensity. And there's evidence that, you know, there's there's a really interesting study where they looked at cortisol increases based on 
exercise intensity. So at 40% of max intensity, there were no changes in cortisol. 60% of max intensity, cortisol was going up by 40%. 80% of max intensity, cortisol goes up by 83%. So, oh. you know, that is that can be enough to keep your hypothalamus suppressed. So I've seen people who are like, okay, I love my exercise. I'm not going to cut that out, you know, so I'm just going to eat a lot. So they eat more, they gain a bunch of weight, and they still don't have their period. And I'm like, okay, let's let's give this a try. And they're like, I've tried everything else. I'm ready. Cut out the high intensity exercise. And, you know, a few weeks later, they ovulate and get their period. Um, you know, we all have a different journey. Um, and, but I also think it's really important. Like, I think that exercise is incredibly healthy for us. It's incredibly beneficial for our bodies, for our minds, you know, for so many things. So I don't advocate like completely cutting out exercise. You know, I think walking and yoga and stretching, those are great um, for period recovery and absolutely getting back into higher intensity exercise once you have your period back. And once, you know, it's sort of, you're a little bit more of a hormonally balanced state. So I, I do recommend waiting until you've had three periods before you pick back up with your high intensity exercise. Um, I've just seen too many people that I've worked with to get their first period, be like, yay, I've recovered. Let's go back to everything. And their second period is nowhere to be found. Um, so anyway, that's lots of, yeah, lots that of was... things to talk about. But, you know, I yeah. really, I really want, do want to focus on the idea that, you know, taking some time off now, a short amount of time is so beneficial. You know, it gets your body to a better state. It gets your mind to a better state. And it really sets you up for a long, healthy life of exercise ahead of you. And that's the thing, I think, like you said before, once you've got it going again, rather than being stuck at rest, it will keep going and you can ramp up the training in the intensity. Mm -hmm. I yep. lost my period in 2017 mm -hmm. and I lost it for three months and then it took six months to become regular. So it came back on the fourth month, uh, but it was super irregular. And then mm -hmm. even, you know, probably for another year and a half, I would have the odd missed cycle. Like I would just have a missed mm -hmm. period. It was usually around a competition where it was like, mm -hmm. it was just a high stress time. And so yep. that would be the one that I would skip or it would just be very small, very, very light. So like, I kind of had this like, you know, ripple effect that carried on for quite a period of mm -hmm. time. But I was at that point ramping up the intensity and it really didn't impact me. And in fact, I was my fittest two years later. So mm, in 2019, mm -hmm. I was 16th. That was my best finish in the CrossFit Open in Oceania. And mm -hmm. so it was like, you know, going from where I was, where I, I really took, I'd taken a year to dial things back. I had an injury at the same time, which was probably a blessing in disguise because I was doing a lot of gymnastics, which uh -huh. is just a lot of like holding the splits and holding a handstand. <laughs> it was like, it was stuff that you have to spend a lot of time practicing. So it was the perfect focus. Mm -hmm. um, and my gymnastics subsequently got much better. Um, but it just Fantastic. allowed me to have that time to, yeah, get back into having a normal cycle, being healthy, eating more food, coming to terms with that as well. Because, you know, you go from being really lean. I was so lean mm -hmm. and I was so scared of gaining weight and undoing all that work but mm -hmm. ultimately I was mm -hmm. undoing all the unhealthy practices that I'd learned I love that and yeah. now yeah now you know I I got my period back I got to my fittest point and even this past year I got really competitive again at the beginning of the year I had a whole lot of blood work done and I've just recently had more blood work done I've gained some weight I've been eating a lot more food I've been much more flexible with my food my food quality it's still the foundation is still good but the you know the extras on top I'm like a little bit a little bit reckless but mm -hmm. my blood work's gotten better. 
And yep. I think that yep. does speak to the fact that less stress, more quantity of food, quality is still a huge factor, but just for so many of us athletes, the quantity of calories is mm -hmm. going to have the bigger impact yeah. because all my health work, all my blood work have improved. Like they've just continued to go up, even though I'm like, oh, that's so funny. I'm training less and mm -hmm. eating more on yeah. quote unquote unhealthy food, but yet my health markers are quite literally objectively on paper getting better. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just like, hey, you can't yeah. argue with that. Yeah. Um, one thing that you said just kind of tweaked me a little bit. I, I also wanted to comment that when we're under fueling, we are a lot more susceptible to injury. So soft tissue injury, stress fractures, you know, all of those kinds of things. So I think that's another real benefit to properly fueling our body is um, and and taking some rest days, like allowing our body to repair and heal. Um, you know, that's a that's a big benefit of taking time off. And honestly, I see a lot of people in a similar situation to you where they they can't quite get themselves to take that time until they have an injury. Um, you know, so if you're <laughs> listening to this and you're thinking, mm, maybe I'm underfueling a little bit for my body's needs, like listen to that. Listen to that warning sign. Don't wait until you're injured before you start taking, you know, taking good care of your body, um, you know. Make sure that you're really yeah. being intentional about your fueling. Um, recognize that particularly with high intensity exercise, that can dampen our hunger signals. It's one of the things that I don't understand biologically. Um, but there was a really nice research study where they looked at, um, in this case, it was men. They, they had them go to a buffet, eat as much as they wanted, measured how much they ate. Um, on a different day, they had them do 800 calories worth of exercise on a, on a bike and then go to the same buffet. They ate more, but only 400 calories more. So it just speaks to having to be possibly a little bit more intentional about your fueling when you're training, because our body's hunger signals don't necessarily naturally make up for the, you know, the energy that we're burning in that way. There is a huge phenomenon with all CrossFitters, mostly, I won't say all because I haven't spoken to all CrossFitters. <laughs> a lot of the CrossFitters that I have spoken to, rest days, everybody is way hungrier than they mm -hmm. are on training days. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, there was a little bit of a hangover from uh, a few people and coaches prescribing lower calories on rest days, which it was mm -hmm. like, oh God, please don't do that. But uh, ironically, people were like, I'm so hungry on rest day. Yeah. And I don't, I don't have the research to back up why either. But, uh, you know, to me, I'm like, if we're in a stress state when we're training, it, yeah. it kind of makes sense that we do have a bit of suppression with hunger and stress kind of overriding some of those signals. We're busy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're filling in our day with being in and out of the gym, running around, doing whatever we're doing. So, you know, eating does kind of drop down the priority list. And then when you're resting, suddenly you've got time, you're relaxed, yeah. you're, you know, yep. you're not in that sympathetic state. And it's like, boom, you actually can it, tune in to your hunger signals. Yeah. And some people might feel like they're sort of quote unquote binging. Um, and I really have found through the years that I've been doing this, that when you feel like you're binging, it's because your body isn't getting enough fuel on other, at other times. So binging comes as a result of restriction in so many cases. I mean, you know, so I think that if you're noticing that, really think about being more intentional about eating regularly through the day, getting enough fuel at other times. And then you'll likely find that those sort of urges to eat an entire house, for example, will mitigate and you know you'll feel you'll feel less out of control around food when you're actually properly feeling yourself
Yeah, I firsthand experienced have absolutely had that happen for me. So we're about to wrap it up, but I wanted to finish because I, I think something that's important that's come out of this that I've learned is, you know, you do hear a little bit of it's hard to overtrain. It's very easy to underfuel. And so your loss of your amenorrhea is a product of underfueling. But I think that you do have to factor in training and intensity and what that does to the system, the body. So th that's actually been important for me. I, I would argue, you know, maybe it isn't a rule like you can't overtrain. You can only underfuel certainly not the case if we're speaking mm. to Nicola. Um, so important for CrossFitters who do a lot of high intensity stuff to yep. note that, you know, maybe we do need to dial down, down the intensity, which doesn't mean you can't do anything and you're not going to make progress. In fact, it's probably going to ultimately long-term give you better progress. Absolutely. The, so then in terms of like prescribing a quantity, um, I know you say 2,500 calories for three months mm -hmm. for people that do do an element of training or have maybe greater muscle mass, things like that. Would you prescribe more? Absolutely. So the, the 2,500 calories is, um, sort of actually the amount that a normal active person should be eating on a daily basis. That's without doing a lot of intentional exercise. That sort of incorporates about 10,000 steps a day to give you, you know, to give you a marker. Um, so that's your basal metabolic rate, the energy you need for digestion, your daily movement, and, you know, a little bit, you know, people who are, people who become amenorrheic tend to generally move their bodies more. You know, you you know, we, we take the stairs instead of the elevator, you know, park a little further away when you're going to the store, like all, all of those things tend to just add up to about 2,500 calories worth a day. So if you're exercising intentionally, you should probably be eating even more than that. So, you know, like I said, the, the women in that, in that study that I was talking about where they looked at within day energy balance, they were eating 3,500 calories a day. Um, mm, mm, which is awesome. Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> and it's amazing that some of them weren't getting a yes, period. Yes. Yeah. So the 2,500 calories is if you have cut out your high intensity exercise and, you know, this is just sort of your normal daily amount. And I don't say for three months, I say this is for the rest of your life because I think it's important to continue to be <laughs> well-fueled forever, you know? Um, so, uh, yes, if somebody's doing more exercise than that, probably more than 2,500. Um, you know, postpartum as well. If you're nursing a baby, remember that that's about 500 calories a day. So if you're, if you're nursing and you're exercising, like, I mean, you should probably be eating about 3,500 a day, if not more, depending on the, you know, depending on the amount of exercise you're doing. So I think really thinking about like your basal metabolic rate is 1200 to 1400 calories a day. If you have a lot of muscle mass, it's probably even more than that. Um, you know, your daily movement, your digestion, like really think intentionally about where your body is spending energy. And if you're not eating that amount, then your, your systems have to cut it out somewhere. So like I said, people, if you're under fueling, you might notice you're cold all the time. You might, your body might be putting less toward digestion. So you have digestive upsets, um, you know, all, all, all sorts of things can happen. But so really, um, you know, I think it's important to fuel our bodies well. I think that, like I said, exercise is fantastic. Well-fueled exercise is even better. And that is what will keep us healthiest for the longest term. Mm. And for people that are in the process of getting their period back, um, I know we're talking a lot about the quantity of food. So it's like, hey, 2,500, 3,000, 3,500 calories. 
um, for people that experience shitty symptoms with their period, whether it's like they get migraines or headaches or they just get super bloated or whatever it might be, is that a temporary thing that comes back or is that just exposing what, you know, what stuff is going on maybe before you lost your period? Is there other things that people need to do to try to decrease their symptoms? So there is um, a practitioner, Lara Brighton, who has a book called The Period Repair mm. Manual. Um, so she gets a lot more into the symptomatology and different supplements and things that you can take to mitigate some of those, um, you know, some of the bloating, all, all that kind of stuff. So that's that's a little bit outside of my expertise. Like I focus much more on getting the period back and feeling your body well and feeling your exercise and not so much on the actual period symptoms. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I do tend to find that sort of the initial periods that you get after recovery can often be a little bit odd in one way or another, you know, more symptomatic, um, you know, heavier, lighter, you know, there's a whole spectrum. So I do generally tell people like, give it a few months for your body to kind of get into a more normal rhythm. And then at that point, you know, there are things like supplements like zinc and magnesium can be helpful if you're deficient, um, you know, vitamin D, all, all sorts of things. But I, I really would put that more onto um, Lara and other people of, you know, mm -hmm. of that nature than, than me. Yeah, I mean, I guess ultimately the consistent theme is your period is a little health report and it's going to give you the red flags of what's going on yeah. in your lifestyle, whether that's your training, your fueling, your stress, whatever is happening in your world, your period will reflect that. And it's actually, it's a useful signal for mm -hmm. us. If we didn't have that, it would be, you know, maybe none of us would be reproducing. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's helpful. It's useful. And I think it's, it's just a nice way to go. Like, like I said before, Hey, look under the hood, like the oil sign is on yeah. uh, the oil light or the check engine light. Like it, it's on, if your period is getting a little irregular, if it's gone missing for a month or two, if you're having really bad symptoms, these are all just in the same realm of, Hey, there's stuff coming in, in your lifestyle. That's not, it's not, uh, optimal for your period to be the way that it could be, which is very regular and symptomless. So, so symptomless. I, I will, I will take a little bit of, um, I will make a little bit of a caveat to that. Like, yes, there please. is, you know, some people have periods that are regular clockwork every 28 days. Others have much less regular periods. Like for me, my period, um, when it was the most regular sort of varied between 28 and 33 days. Um, you know, my, mm -hmm. my luteal phase yeah. is part of that because that varied between say 10 and 12 days, depending on, you know, the amount of exercise I was doing mental stress, you know, sometimes it was as short as seven days. Um, you know, now I'm a little bit older maybe perimenopausal, my cycles are all over the place now. Like sometimes it's 21 days, sometimes it's 37 days, you know, it's so I don't, I don't like people to focus on having a sort of quote unquote perfect menstrual cycle. Um, you know, I think that that can mm. lead to like, I just, I just, I guess I just don't love the search for perfection in general. <laughs> like, you know, I think that we can, you know, our bodies, our bodies do what they do. Sometimes they're, you know, sometimes things might be a little bit off and that's okay. Um, you know, a lot of people will miss a cycle or have a delayed ovulation if they get sick, for example. It's like, okay, your body can't manage to do both things at once. That's fine, you know? So I think really looking more at your 
overall patterns rather than focusing on the minutia, I think is, is what I would say. Yeah. Um, you know, so overall, if you add training and your cycles get lighter and lighter and lighter month to month, okay, maybe think about maybe I need to be fueling more. Um, but one cycle that's a little bit different, you know, I would just kind of chalk that up to, you know, things happen, life happens, um, you know, things are probably fine. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that addition. Absolutely. I think that that is absolutely true and so important. And I, I think then, so I guess what you get from that is if you don't understand your period and you're mm -hmm. thrown by one thing being off, maybe that's where it becomes more important to understand, like you said, what's the bigger picture? Are you, are you tracking your cycle? Do you know yeah. when it is off and when it isn't? Or when it's something that you're like, oh, you know, I had a really stressful month or I, I was sick or I had this thing happen. And so that's probably why this has happened. And I'm cool with that. That's okay. It'll probably refigure re itself out yeah. in the next cycle. Yeah. So, um, what do you, I'll make this the final question. Um, if tracking your cycle is an important part of understanding your cycle, so you can interpret those things, what do you do for tracking? I know you said that you have a Marina, but you still track ovulation. What, yeah. what is your practice? Yeah. So I really cannot highlight enough how important I think tracking your menstrual cycle is. And I don't just mean when is my period starting and when is it ending? I mean, when am I ovulating? You know, how long is my luteal phase? So I mostly find that I do that through through taking my temperature now. Um, so mm -hmm. I, uh, I've i done it for so long that I can basically take my temperature on any given day and know if I've ovulated or not. Um, so, you know, your baseline temperature is probably something like 35.8 to 36.3. It'll bounce up and down before ovulation in that range. Um, and then after ovulation, it goes to a little bit of a higher range. So it might be 36.4 to 37, something like that. So just confirming that, you know, taking your temperature regularly, you also will probably notice changes in cervical mucus. Um, for me, again, as I, you know, as I said, I think I'm going through perimenopause, so I'm not noticing changes in cervical mucus anymore, but I certainly did when I was younger. You know, you have egg white cervical mucus that happens in sort of the three to five days before you ovulate. I used to be able to track my cycles just by that, like, you know, oh yeah, I've got my cervical yep. mucus, I'm good. Um, you know, so a combination of the two, um, you know, I really find that taking my temperature can be very stress-free. Uh, I often forget. So if I really want to, I'll just set an alarm on my phone for whatever time I want to get up. You know, it doesn't have to be the same time every day. Um, I put my thermometer right on top of my phone so that in order to t turn off my alarm, I have to pick <laughs> up my thermometer, <laughs> pop it in my mouth, take my temperature. You know, like I said, my temperature is 36. I know I haven't ovulated. If it's 36.5, I probably have, you know, and so... At the moment, I'm just tracking to that level. Like, am I still ovulating or not? You know, it's just that's, um, but when I was training more, when I was, you know, certainly when you're trying to get pregnant, you know, it's really helpful to know when you're ovulating. Um, and so I think that, you know, particularly if you're adding exercise, you're, you're changing your food, I think monitoring your ovulation, seeing like, is my luteal phase, which is the time between ovulation and getting your period, is that shortening? Is my follicular phase getting longer? You know, Understanding your cycle to that level of detail, I think, is so incredibly helpful um, just for understanding how your body is feeling about the changes that you're making. 
Yeah. And some of that terminology, I did a really quick podcast. It was like 25 minutes long that explains things like luteal phase mm -hmm. and follicular phase and stuff like that. So for people who are confused by those terms, you should not be, you need to go and find some of those podcasts to get some of those basics. Cause it's super helpful just to have that, that vernacular that we all yeah. share and can understand. Like when you talk about these things, I'm like, oh yeah, that this, these things, this is where that's yep. happening. And I, I have that same experience and it's cool. Yeah. And it, it can often feel over overwhelming. It's really not. Um, you know, I've been taking my temperature for the same thing, probably four or five years now. I use a temp drop, which is like you wear a sleeve on your arm at night mm -hmm. and it monitors you all night. Mm -hmm. I don't even have to take it in the morning, which is yeah. like so easy to do. It's just like, and same thing. I'm like, I should probably only be wearing this around day. Like for me, I ovulate day 17. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I mm -hmm. could probably just wear it for a few days of my cycle. And I know, but yeah. I wear it every time just because it's easy. So it, it is a super simple thing. Same thing with the cervical mucus, egg white. If you're just checking for egg white, like boom, you, you start starting to get on top of knowing yeah. where you're at in your cycle. And it's just and so it cool to know your body like that. that. It really yeah. is. Yeah. Like understanding your body <laughs> and the feeling of empowerment that gives you is huge. Yeah. I remember going, oh, like discharge isn't just random. Yeah. Oh, yes. okay. <laughs> oh my God. There's a reason for it. What? <laughs> yes. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. That's the message. Eat, eat enough food to have a healthy cycle and a healthy life. Yep. Know why you're having a cycle. Know where you're at. Like, it's just, it's super valuable. It's an investment in yourself. It's fun. Go down that rabbit hole. It is super interesting. It takes time to learn, but man, it, it's just, yeah. we have such a complex system and it's super fun to get some insight into it. Absolutely. So, Thank you so much. Like I said, uh, guys, please go and get Nicola's book, No Period, Now What? You can find her on Instagram with the same handle, No Period, Now What? Uh, and you can do some coaching. What is your coaching structure? Do you do one-on-one? -on -one? I do, yes. And I have a, I offer a wide range of possibilities because I want my services to, available to, to be available to anyone who needs them. So I offer just quick blood work checks. I offer 10-minute consults for a single question. Oh, cool. Um, you know, I'll offer a half hour, 45 minutes, you can work with me for six sessions, like all of it's available, because I just, you know, I think it's really important that um, this information is out there. And, you know, I, I'm really good at this point at sort of looking at what somebody is doing and giving feedback and like, okay, let's tweak these things, you know, I take your personal situation into account, like, are you training for a competition right now? Okay, maybe, you know, maybe we wait a little while and, you know, do this after you're done. It's, you know, Whatever, whatever happens has to work for the person that I'm working with. Um, so people can find me if they go to noperiod.info slash appointments. Um, and my book is available as an ebook on my website at noperiod.info slash book. Um, you, you can also get a paperback there or through Amazon. Um, and yeah, I think that's, I think that's amazing. Everybody go and learn from Nicola. You are awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me. I, this has been super valuable and I just love your message. And I'm so stoked that we have someone like you giving women the help and the information that they need to be their best selves. And men. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. That was my, that was my, my new thing for the day. Yeah. At, uh, yeah. Is it follicle, follicle simulating hormone? Yep given to men as well yes. from women. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. Have a great, awesome. have a